We've certainly had our cases where there are assets that are hidden, that someone has not put on the net worth statement that you would never know something was sold. Real estate, for example, maybe it's in an island, maybe it's, you know, the money is sitting in an escrow account with an attorney someplace and you don't know about it. You might not always find everything. I mean, that's something else that I think people have to come to terms with, that they may not find every single thing out there. Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Welcome to Financially Ever After. I am Stacy Francis, and I am speaking to you today about high net worth divorce and the top financial issues you need to know about to make sure that you walk away with the settlement you deserve. And our guest today is Lisa Ziderman. She's a partner at Miller Ziderman, an attorney that was founded almost a decade ago and has an expertise, particularly dealing with difficult divorces, not only difficult custody divorce matters, but also high net worth divorce and complex assets. She comes to us with a certified divorce financial analyst designation and also is a certified financial litigator and is a faculty teaching to other matrimonial attorneys how to deal with complex assets in divorce. You've probably seen her. She's been named everywhere for her expertise and, and honored. In 2002 alone, honored by Crane's New York list of notable women attorneys, also the Hudson Valley Best Lawyers, and in 2001, Best Family Law Attorneys for Client Satisfaction, and that was by the American Institute of Family Law Attorneys. Make sure you check out her website, www.lisaziderman.com. There you'll find many blogs that she has written about all the financial issues ranging from tax impact to long-term custody arrangements that work and those that don't work. And make sure that you also check out SavvyLadies.org. Lisa is on the board of Savvy Ladies. I am the founder and we work one-on-one with individuals helping them achieve financial empowerment, financial education, and long-term financial security. All of our services are pro bono. And so if you have financial questions, you can reach out to Savvy Ladies. So without further ado, I'd love to welcome our guest today, Lisa Ziderman of, again, Miller Ziderman, talking about high net worth divorce and all the issues, all the issues you need to know about. Lisa, I'm so excited to talk to you today about what individuals need to be thinking about if they're high net worth individuals thinking about and going through divorce. I think what's really key and important, a lot of people don't realize their high net worth. We'll talk about what that really means, but many more people fall into what we're talking about today than they really realize. But I'd love for you to talk about what you do, how you launched the firm, and how you've really grown it into you know, one of the top matrimonial practices on the East Coast. 
I know that you've worked your brains out, <laughs> part of how you've done it. We have. I mean, there's no question. We work very hard, but I launched the firm in 2013 with my partner and it was an incredible experience doing it. And we grew the firm from approximately five people to 40 people. So we are approximately 17 attorneys and many of which are now my partners who we've brought in and we've promoted from within the firm and paralegals to support them. And then an office staff, including a COO who supports us. So it grew each year, which is always wonderful. And we keep growing it. And I think that's because we really try to serve our clients. And we understand that our clients are really at the most stressful point in their lives, being either they're having issues, custodial issues, custody issues, or financial issues with their spouse. And it's just really important to be knowledgeable, be educated, and to be supportive of the client. And I think that that's what we do. And that's why we're able to grow as fast as we were. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing to see where you were. I mean, you're coming up on a decade and you've increased, what is that, 800, 900%, which is phenomenal. And you've carved out a, a niche of working with highly litigious, complex asset, high net worth, and divorces where there are significant custody issues. So essentially the tough ones, some people would say. And today we're all talking about high net worth. And before we jump into what should we be thinking about, what should you know our listeners be thinking about if they're in that situation thinking about or going through divorce, Tell me what high net worth means to you, because many more people actually are in this bucket than they realize. Well, so, you know, high net worth is relative, right? And right. people always say to me, what is mm-hmm. high net worth? So in my mind, okay, high net worth probably is anywhere from 10 million on. But that doesn't mean that we don't service clients who are at a $2 million or a $1 million level. And certainly if you have assets that are million and you're looking at equitable distribution and no one has a separate property claim, you're each going to walk away with approximately $5 million in assets. That's a good amount of money to walk away with. But I will say, you know, we're jaded. We are in New York and we are in Manhattan. And there are, frankly, quite a few people out there who have assets that are in excess of $10 million and who are earning monies that are in the two and three and $4 million range every year. So I think that it's, it's all relative, right? And it's all also according to what lifestyle you've built, because someone can be high net worth and have had a minimal income, but maybe they really saved. And sometimes they come into me with $5 million and they've saved it over the years. They have their pension, they have their retirement funds, They've really worked to make sure that they live within their means and that they've planned well for their retirement. Yeah. And I have to say, those are our favorite clients because to become a millionaire, there are so many myths of what a millionaire looks like and how they get there. And most people think it's a really big income, which is, of course, the case in some situations. But we also have a lot of clients who have incomes from nonprofits and they've been able to build two, three, four million dollar portfolios because we've been really smart with with their spending and how we save. And I think the other piece that's really important to know about many people think high net worth that they have the complex situation with their assets, but that's not always the case. There are more and more individuals that 
have good amounts, 1 million, 2 million, but they have very complex assets such as restricted stock units, stock options, performance shares, maybe even private equity and now cryptocurrency is much more in the in the mix. So while issues we think only pertain to just those 10 million dollar plus clients, I'm definitely seeing that there are many many more people are having to untangle complex assets during divorce. Are you seeing that too? A hundred percent, because even, you know, people with that million dollars come to us and they have that cryptocurrency or they are being given restricted stock more and more, more and more people are receiving restricted stock as part of their executive compensation. So they have a base and then they get the restricted stock and that restricted stock is often in place to keep them for many years, you know, after their bonus time, essentially almost as golden handcuffs. And so Yes, we do see that more and more often. And obviously stock options and other ways that executives are compensated. And I don't think you necessarily have to be earning, you know, that million plus to be receiving that. We see that sometimes when people come to us and they are earning far less and they still have restricted stock, hundreds of thousands of dollars perhaps, and still are getting restricted stock units. And you have to be on top of that because if you're not on top of it, you know, they may have forgotten themselves that that asset exists because maybe it was just not as important to them as receiving their base pay. And that was essentially something extra that they weren't focused on, but that restricted stock could be meaningful over the years. And you know, I want to make sure everybody stays to the end because we're going to drive down into restricted stock, stock options, performance shares, and severance agreements too, because there are some pieces of information you need to know because we do see people leave these assets on the table and they could be leaving just hundreds of thousands of dollars, but potentially millions of dollars on the table. Absolutely. So back to the listener that's thinking about divorce, if they are a high net worth person, what should she be thinking about as she starts the divorce process? So I'm going to group it into three areas, right? Assets, income and expenses. And understanding the source of the income, in my mind, is first and foremost. Understanding whether the income is coming in to your household from employment, or is it coming in because of the actual investment income that you're receiving on assets? Because you certainly want to understand the investment income because you'll be able to back into the some or most of the assets if you understand the investment income. Not necessarily all of it, because as you know, Stacey, there are real estate investments, sometimes there will be refinances and those won't necessarily show up on the tax return because they aren't taken as income for that particular year. And so they may show up when the property is sold as opposed to now. So you have to go further than the income tax return, but it's a great starting place to look at the investment income, meaning the dividends and the distributions that have been received during a year. Then you also need to grasp the expenses themselves, the lifestyle. What is your lifestyle? What is essentially the burn rate every month? Because you have to also make sure that your burn rate corresponds in some way to the income that is being received into the household. And I think there is sometimes a disconnect between those two issues, right? And we just Mm -hmm. talked about that person who saved all of their money and maybe had a very low burn rate every month in terms of expenses, but was able to really put money away for retirement, et cetera. And then again, if you're not the person who is generating that income, then how do we create the income 
for you. So which assets are you going to look at that will be something that you may want to take in terms of equitable distribution of the assets so that income is generated for you by people much like yourself, Stacey, right? Because you have that ability to take assets and then to generate income for your client so that they know that they can live off of that income and not necessarily dig into their assets every single month. That's really important. And then looking at the assets themselves, whether there are, if you're, when you're actually distributing, and we'll talk more about this, but looking at which assets are you going to want? Because are they assets that are tied to taxable gains? Are they assets that have huge capital gains, for example? You want to make sure that those are distributed in such a way that you're not getting hit with all of the taxes. They should need to be equitably distributed, as should the property. And you brought up something that I want to go back to because it's so important. And that is understanding what your monthly burn rate is and seeing, does that really make sense with the income? The income you can see on the tax return, but we also know that often there's income that's hitting the marital pocket without going through the tax return. And if you have a burn rate of, let's say, $20,000 a month and the total household income that your spouse is claiming is $100,000, which after tax is maybe, let's say, $4,000 a month. I wouldn't, maybe not even that, maybe less. That doesn't make sense. When do you see this happen? What type of situation could this be happening in? So we see it when people sometimes own their own businesses because a lot of the expenses or some of the expenses may be being paid through the business. And so, for example, people may be paying for their vacations, their mortgages, the lights on in their home. I mean, mm-hmm. you name it, we see it, right? And all of those expenses that are flowing through the business are perhaps not being recaptured as income at the end of the year. And so when you look at those expenses and you see that the income and the expenses do not match up and that it would be literally impossible to meet the expenses on the income that is being set forth on the income tax return, then you have to say to yourself, well, where is the money coming from, right? So one place could be a business. There also could be cash income. That is something that you have to consider, right? That somebody in the household is being paid with cash or that there's some assets that are being held someplace that you don't know about that are being liquidated or that are giving off some sort of an income stream that you also don't know about. So I would say that those are the three places certainly to look at. Yeah. Do you ever see funny business going on with real estate that's being rented out too, where you look at the tax return and it may even show a loss on that property that they're not getting enough rental income to cover the expenses? Sure. Because sometimes rental income is paid in cash, right? And so somebody literally goes around and they collect the rental income. And that person who's collecting the rental income is then putting it in their pocket or in their safe deposit box or wherever they are able to hide the cash. So yes, I mean, that is, is certainly a place that we see it. And you brought up something that I think was really important. There could be an asset out there that you don't realize that's being liquidated to fund the marital lifestyle. And you shared how important it is to look at that tax return. And I always believe that I grew up in the country. And what I learned very quickly is that if you see mouse droppings, there is a mouse. Whether you like it or not, a field mouse has joined the household. And it's the same thing with the tax return. And you 
you talk about looking at what interest income is being generated, what dividends, what capital gains are being generated. And if you go to that capital gains and losses report, they list the accounts. It's, they it's right there. They should list the accounts, right? So sometimes they don't list the accounts. This is always like, you know, the catch, right? But for the most part, for the most part, everything should be listed on the tax return. You're right. And those are your mouse droppings or your breadcrumbs or however you want to put it. But that is a good place to start. We've certainly had our cases where there are assets that are hidden, that someone has not put on the net worth statement that you would never know something was sold real estate, for example, maybe it's in an island, maybe it's, you know, the money is sitting in an escrow account with an attorney someplace and you don't know about it. You might not always find everything. I mean, that's something else that I think people have to come to terms with, that they may not find every single thing out there. But if they feel like they have found most of it, and, and I mean most, then it's time mm-hmm. just to think about what to yeah. do next. When would you suggest that a client brings in a forensic accountant? And if you can talk a little bit about what a forensic accountant might do here. Sure. So a forensic accountant is someone that we bring in many times to value a business. So if one of the parties in a divorce action has a business, forensic accountant will value the business. They will examine the books, the general ledgers, QuickBooks, the expenses, normalize the expenses. So we just talked about, for example, the issue of personal expenses being paid through a business. One of the things that a forensic accountant will do is to look at all the expenses that actually are going through the business and normalize those expenses as if someone else owned the business essentially, right? Because no one else might, you know, if that business was sold, somebody might not be selling it to someone who's going to be paying for their vacations from the business. And so then that would add to the value of the business. We also look to a forensic accountant for what's called an income stream analysis to figure out what's the income being generated, what is the lifestyle Because a lot of times people come to us and they don't really know what their burn rate is, for example. There may be too many credit cards out there, not that they are credit cards that aren't being paid every month, but they are credit cards that they, it's just impossible to track all the expenses. There may be a business credit card. There may be personal credit cards. You know, somebody's paying for the vacations on one credit card. Somebody's paying for, you know, dinners on another, that type of situation. And of course, all the ATM withdrawals, also tracking if we can figure out what those are. And transfers of accounts, right? Between accounts. And sometimes that becomes very complex. And it is a very good way, I think, for people to hide assets is to make a lot of transfers because it becomes so difficult without a forensic accountant to track all of those transfers. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a a puzzle, you know, an escape room. But the problem is, is some people never escape that escape room. And people who do this, you know, they're on purpose hiding assets they really don't want them to be found. They really don't. And it becomes almost a game that I'm going to win. And I agree that having that forensic accountant to help unravel, help find, but knowing that you're probably not going to find everything. Because also you can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to find a $20,000 IRA. That's right. And so there has to be some practical considerations. How much am I going to spend? for how much, right, am I going to find? That is an important consideration. The other time we use forensic accountants is, there are actually two other times that I use them frequently. One is to trace separate property. So, you know, in New York, and and I think in a lot of states across the country, 
if you came into the marriage with certain separate property and you kept it separate and apart and you did not commingle it and you can identify it, that will be your separate property. Or if you had an inheritance during the marriage and you kept it separate and apart. Sometimes people don't necessarily keep it as separate and apart as they should. Sometimes a forensic accountant can work backwards and try to figure that out So and try to trace it. It may not be a perfect tracing and you may not sustain your burden of getting 100% of the assets, but you might actually get a bigger equitable distribution of the assets. So maybe instead of getting 50%, you get 60% or 65%, depending upon what the asset was that you're trying to trace. You know, sometimes people come in with millions of dollars into their marriage because they've worked for so many years. And as people get married, either for the second time or they get married older, they may have worked a longer time period and have collected assets and then they commingled to them. And is that really fair that they get nothing of that? So sometimes we bring in a forensic accountant to do that tracing. The other time we bring in a forensic accountant is sometimes to actually deal with the executive compensation and tracking what should happen with that restricted stock, doing the De Jesus formulas, which is yeah. a way to actually divide the restricted stock. And so those are different reasons to bring in a forensic yeah. accountant. And this goes into this next question. And and we're going to come back into what the De Jesus formula is and how do you deal with uh, restricted stock units and stock options, things that maybe some portions have vested, others have not. But it's really key to hire a matrimonial attorney that understands this. So let's talk about that. What do high net worth persons need to consider when they're hiring a matrimonial attorney when so, they have such complex situations? You need to have a consultation with the attorney. You need to understand, does the attorney understand the asset structure? That's very important. What are they going to do in terms of your case? What's going to be the procedures? How will they start? Where do they see the case moving towards? What types of documents are they going to be looking for? You know, if I was going into an attorney, I certainly would want to know who was supervising my case. It's an easy question, right? But you should know. So you want to make sure that the person who you're consulting with is actually supervising your case. They may not be doing the everyday work of your case, but they need to be hands-on with your case. They should know the facts. because, And the reason that they shouldn't be really doing everyday things is because you want to actually make sure that you're minimizing your legal fees uh, to yeah. some, right? And <laughs> so they're expensive. Right. And so there are other people in the firm who can actually do a lot of that day-to-day work and then give feedback to the attorney who is supervising the case. So that's number one. Number two, who's, who's your team? Who is yeah. going to be your team? Not just in the law firm, but who is this attorney that you're working with? Who are they going to bring in? Have they identified during the consultation the business, that there is a business? Are they talking about you know executive compensation that needs to be divided? Are they thinking about tax issues and tax, you know, capital gains, carry forward losses, all of those types of issues? If they can talk the talk, that's really important because they are complex issues that you're going to be looking at. And so if they have no idea what you're talking about, you should leave the room. Don't stay for this. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that there's also a couple other things that you can look for. I know, Lisa, you're a certified divorce financial analyst in addition to being a matrimonial attorney, and you are also a certified financial litigator and you know, have gone through this training and, and actually you're one of the faculty for the American 
I'm going to get it wrong. The American Association of Certified Financial Litigators. Did I get it right? American Academy, but it's close. American Academy. That was close. I'm quite chuffed with myself. So would those be two things that you would also recommend that someone look for? Yes. I mean, you're not going to find a lot of matrimonial attorneys, as you know, who have a CDFA, the Certified Divorce Financial Analyst. There aren't a lot of them. That doesn't mean that there aren't other capable attorneys out there. I think those are pluses. And I think you want to also see what is your attorney writing about? Has your attorney published articles? Are they, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a huge social media presence on LinkedIn. I actually, I write a blog on my um, lisaseidemann.com site. I am active in terms of CLEs and reading about all of the information that's out there. So you just want to make sure your attorney is super knowledgeable and that the person who is also going to be dealing with you on a day-to-day basis is also knowledgeable. Those are important qualities. Many, if not all of my paralegals, for example, are certified financial litigator paralegals. So that is a big asset too, right? So you you want to make sure people are reading and and actually learning. Cryptocurrency, as you know, is, is still fairly new for the matrimonial bar, you know, in terms of learning it. And we bring in experts like yourself and forensic accountants, but you still have to be knowledgeable. I just did a whole deposition on cryptocurrency two weeks ago. I had to make myself really understand all the information. Yeah. And cryptocurrency is one of the easiest currencies to assets to hide, you know, talk about being difficult. So I know I made a promise at the beginning to dive a little bit more into executive compensation. And This is a really important topic because previously it was only typically the C-suite, very highly compensated individuals that were receiving this type of compensation. And that has changed, especially because of COVID. We are seeing companies like Amazon awarding restricted stock units to delivery persons, truck drivers, individuals at all levels of the company. So It's a mainstream type of asset, but the ability to split it in a divorce is definitely not mainstream. So talk to me about what are some of the things people need to think about with restricted stock units and then also stock options. They kind of all fall within that executive compensation conversation. So they do. So one of the things is you need to make sure you have all the documents. Okay. So, you know, the documents are the key, the grant letters, the award letters. All of that information that comes from the company that either your spouse or you are actually working for. And there's a whole list of documents that we ask for in terms of of these stock options and restricted stock, because those documents will actually help you to analyze whether this is for an incentive-based program or whether this is a bonus for past performance. And therein lies the actual key to the whole thing, right? If you are actually getting divorced and you're in the middle of a year and you file for divorce, then you may be entitled to a portion of the, your, your spouse's bonus at, that comes either at the end of December or even into March or April, for example, depending upon the company. And you'll be entitled to a fractional portion of that. Well, if they got restricted stock or stock options as part of their bonus for past performance, you may be entitled to a portion of that. If they instead got something that was incentively based, you may not. But if they got something incentively based for that year, then they may have gotten it for previous years. And the question is, is there unvested stock that is going to vest in the future that was received during the marriage? And if so, what is your fractional de Jesus, right formula that you're going to use to figure out what is the marital share of that stock? 
And it's that marital component that's so important to figure out. And it depends to some degree on whether there is something called cliff vesting. In other words, it vests all at once. Does it vest over time? I will also tell you, I'm going to add something to this because I I see it all the time now. So after you go through all of that, you need to make sure you as a client understand it. It'll be in your agreement. And then you have to make sure that you actually recoup that stock or there's to go collect it. You go. Yes. So I can't tell you how many people they call me for something and they, they knew up front that they had to collect it. It was part of the deal. We probably spent so much time negotiating that piece of the deal. And we, we did all the formulas. And then we look at the agreement. And as we're asking about something else, I inevitably say, and did you get the portion of the stock that you were supposed to get, which normally would be monies, right? Because the stock is still held by the employed spouse. And they say, oh, no, I forgot about that. Or no, he or she did not pay that to me. Yeah. And so- Yeah, have I have to- a hard time even identifying that because like, if I drop a quarter, I pick it up. And God forbid, if I didn't pick it up, I would feel this pang of guilt that I am a, like a, I'm not paying attention and I'm being a spendthrift. But restricted stock units are, they're complicated. And you're right, Lisa, because it's not just as easy as breaking up a checking account where you take half and you know he takes half, she takes half. Restricted stock units, if they're earned by him, we'll just say that, they can't move to her until they vest. So they have to be held in a quote unquote constructive trust under his name at the employer. And then when they vest at that time in the future, she can have the after-tax proceeds sent to her. But you know, it's not a no-brainer. There's quite a bit to keep track of. And you know, she's not seeing the updated account statements or able to log into the portal to see this at the employer exactly. either. So it's exactly. almost like out of sight, out of mind, but it can be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So I agree that it's really important. And, you know, we talk about the De Jesus formula. Everyone listening, you don't have to know that, right? It's kind of like going to a heart surgeon. You don't have to know how to do the surgery, but you have to know a great heart surgeon. So you need to know a great matrimonial attorney and ideally a great certified divorce financial analyst who, who can do that calculation to show what would be marital that you could split, even if it's unvested and what's not. I want to go back to something you said, because this is really important. A bonus or restricted stock units or some other type of executive compensation that's given to someone and the difference between whether it's given to someone as an incentive for them to stay and kind of the golden handcuffs stay at that company versus a reward for past performance, ideally when they've been married. Can you talk again about how that is different and why it has such an importance on whether or not you're walking away with more money? Sure. So keep in mind, we have a commencement date. In New York, there's a commencement date. Some states, by the way, they they count the assets or value the assets at the end of the marriage, literally. So it's not for every single state. But in New York, as it is, I believe in California and some of the other states, you are going to be looking at whether, what is the date of commencement of the action? Now, if you received this bonus for work that was performed during the marriage, then that is marital, okay? Because it was work that was performed. You might have contributed in some indirect or direct way to that work performed, and you would get an equitable division of those shares. If 
it's for work to be in the future after the commencement date, then you do not get that money. Okay. Because that is, is in the future. It's after the divorce. It's after the marriage is over essentially. And that money belongs to the spouse. That money may be used. Okay. To pay support, for example, child support, mm-hmm. alimony, yeah. spousal support, right? But that is going to be your spouse's money. Just because it's incentive, however, does not mean, and this is, I think, the, the tricky part, does not mean that there will not be some incentive awards in the future that the spouse may have gotten during the marriage. In other words, let's just say that the award came and invests out over three years, and you're only in year one when the divorce action starts, you still have years two and three, and your spouse was working towards those rewards in years two and three. So there will be some fractional component of that that you will also receive. But essentially, after the commencement date, awards that are incentively based, you're not going to get. And so how does your matrimonial attorney tell which is which? So looking at the award letters and the grant documents. And the words and the the language. The words and the language, right. And the case law and depositions where we are asking that person who was receiving the stock, whether it was for, you know, was this a bonus that you received for work that you performed? Or was this actually for, in order for the company to keep you, okay, in the future? So it's a combination, but those documents are usually pretty detailed. And some of them actually, for certain financial institutions, they literally say incentive right on them and all through the document. And they have become, I think, maybe because they're more aware that there is a divorce component to this, they have become more aware and the documents are better written to address Mm -hmm. that particular issue. That makes sense. I want to come to the last topic and it's very timely. It's all about taxes. We're coming into tax season. What are some tax-oriented assets? that some people might not think about. And then the second question I have is what tax considerations should we be figuring into taking asset A over asset B? But let's go into the tax assets that a lot of people forget to recognize. Okay, so obviously one is retirement accounts. And it's not all retirement accounts because there's also the Roth retirement accounts, the Roth IRAs that you may have that have actually been taxed already. So you always want to get your hands if you can. If you're trying to to have assets that have already been taxed, you want to get your hands onto the Roth IRAs if you can. The Roth IRAs, Um, in my opinion, it's the best asset out there. Roth IRAs, and because it starts with an R, Roth, really, really, really good. (laughs) Just remember (laughs) that. that. I love that. (laughs) Exactly. And how is that different than just like a regular rollover IRA or traditional IRA, 401k or 403b that you might see retirement plan? Well, so the Roth, if that's what you're asking me, the Roth has been taxed. That's your pre, yeah. that is your after tax money that's gone into it. Yeah. And then you're going to look at your 401ks and your IRAs, and you're going to think about those as taxable assets. In other words, assets that have to be taxed in the future. When you take the monies out, when you retire, presumably, you will take out certain monies every year. And yep. all of that is taxable. So what is important is that people do not are not mixing their apples and their oranges because the apples need to stay in the at the apple farm and the oranges need to stay in the supermarket let's just say right so yeah. when they're looking at cash accounts versus retirement accounts for the most part cash accounts are not going to be taxable 
retirement accounts are. So you can't compare. You can't say I'm going to take $400,000 of retirement accounts in exchange for $400,000 of cash. It's not the same thing. That's important. Same thing when you're starting to trade equity in the marital residence. You have to think about, is there a capital gain that I'm going to be looking at, right? There is a deduction or an exemption for capital gains. It's, I think, $250,000 for one person, $500,000 for two people. But now you may be one person. If this is a home that you have owned for a very long time and it's gone way up in value, there is going to be a significant capital gain. So again, it's not cash for cash. You have to think about that. There will also, of course, be broker's fees and transfer taxes and and maybe flip taxes. All of those things have to be considered. And the home, I know, is always an emotional issue for people or usually an emotional issue, but it has to be. You have to think about it. You also need to think about your brokerage accounts because your brokerage accounts may indeed have different capital gains associated with them. So for example, if you owned Apple stock, right, when maybe it was $3, okay, and now it is... I don't even know what it is today, but there's going to be a huge capital gain. Now, you may have really believed in Apple and bought it at several times during the marriage or your spouse did or whoever was actually managing your finances. You need to make sure that you're getting an in-kind distribution so that the cost basis for the taxes is the same for you and your spouse, if that's what your goal is. You're not getting all that Apple stock that was $3.00. And your spouse is getting all that Apple stock that was bought like last week. And then, of course, the losses, right? You need, believe it or not, with tax losses, those are an asset that can be utilized. And so those carry forward losses, don't just skip that part. Make sure that you've identified if there were huge losses. I just did a deposition a couple of weeks ago and somebody said, I lost $5 million one year and I lost $3 million another year. And I'm thinking, okay, but where's the carry forward losses then? Where are they reported on the tax return? And We went through the tax return and there were some losses reported on the tax return, but I'm going to say that they were not all reported yet. And so that is an asset actually. And it's not going to be likely on the net worth statement. And you're not going to know unless you probably have had an attorney dig and that could be very well worthwhile. And then the restricted stock units that we talked about earlier, those will have taxes that have to be paid when they vest. And so when you negotiate that agreement, you need to make sure that that's accounted for somehow, particularly if you're the person who is the employed spouse, okay, who has those restricted stock units, right? Because those taxes are coming at you and you're going to be paying off the other spouse. And I've heard it. I've never done it, thank goodness, but I certainly have heard where people did not account for those taxes. The worst case scenario. For everyone listening, I know we're coming up to the end. We've got a lot of resources for you in the show notes. I know that Lisa talked a little bit about what documents to request as far as grant letters, award letters for bonuses and employee compensation. We're going to have the full list of what you should ask. And also, we're going to have a link to a couple articles that Lisa and I have collaborated on that talks more about tax issues that are of utmost importance to consider during the divorce process because we've scratch the surface and it's such an important topic. Before we go, can you share, Lisa, how our listeners get a hold of you and know that Lisa practices here throughout New York, but both Lisa and I have great contacts for matrimonial attorneys that are across the United States. So can you share how our listeners can reach out to you? Sure. So I have a website actually where I write a blog. That's one place, lisaziderman.com. I also, someone can email me at lz at mzw-law.com. 
or they can call my office at 914-455-1000. For all of you listening, if you're driving, don't worry. This is all going to be in the show notes. I don't want anyone to get in an accident trying to write this down. We'll include both the lisasitemen.com website as well as Lisa's email and phone number. Lisa, you know, we could talk for another hour. As you know, we, we have no problem talking about this stuff. We, we love it. What would be your biggest takeaway, parting piece of advice, wisdom, or tips to our listeners today? You know, we are going into tax season. And I'm going to just tell everybody, this is the time to start thinking about that because there will be a question that you have for your matrimonial attorney about whether you should sign the joint tax returns or not. Make sure that you start thinking about that and asking that question. There may be indemnification agreements that may be important for you to get so that you're not being held to what necessarily your spouse's income is as set forth on the tax return or what the dividends or distributions are and that you're indemnified if you don't have the information yourself to the extent that it's your spouse's information that you are indemnified by your spouse. So it's really important to start thinking about the fact that we are entering tax season right now. I agree. And there's a lot of decisions that have to be made pretty shortly. Lisa, thank you so much for coming. This has been an absolute pleasure. And I want to say to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us for Financially Ever After. Please do check out Lisa's website. The blogs are fabulous. If you think what we have been speaking about today has been insightful and interesting, I have to tell you that her blog will take you a lot further into many other topics that you never even knew you should be asking questions about. Thank you again, Lisa, for being here and spending this time with us. Thank you so much, Stacey. It was such a pleasure. It's always great to talk and we could probably talk days on the on these exactly. topics. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today at Financially Ever After. Know that the podcast notes have everything you need to know about not only reaching out and getting the information about employee benefits, but also a link to numerous articles that can help you better understand the topics that we spoke about today and expand upon them to make sure that you have all the information you need to make the best decisions, putting yourself on a track to long-term financial security, because that's what we all want. I realize that money is not the most important thing in life, but for women in particular, money does give us options. Money does give us opportunities. And so if you have questions about your settlement agreement, if you have questions about what you should be thinking about as you're considering divorce, how to build your team, please reach out to me. You can reach out to me to my personal email, Stacy, S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. And also you can visit our website, francisfinancial.com, a fantastic blog section talking about the top issues you need to know about, not only to create your team, but again, to make those perfect, good decisions during divorce to set you up for long-term financial security. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you in two weeks at the next podcast recording of Financially Ever After.